The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Well, thanks for the introduction, Peter. Um, like I said, my name is Derek Overstreet. I know some of you out there, some of you even look familiar, although I don't know you. Um, I've met some of you already who know my boys from Push Ridge. Uh, they both went through Push Ridge and played football, so I was already talking with, I think it was Ross, uh, about Push Ridge football this morning. Uh, my wife, uh, I'm married and I have three children. My wife Donna would have loved to have been here. She had planned on being here this morning, but she is feeling the effects of sin in a very real way this morning. Uh, she is at home, in bed, very sick. Uh, she would love to be here with us and worshiping with, with, with you all, um, but uh, the Lord had other plans. We have three children, uh, Desiree, Brett, and Tyler, uh, and we have two grand, grandchildren, two grandsons, Xander and Liam. They're three and two. Uh, we have been blessed to have the family that we have. Uh, we're grateful, grateful to the Lord. I wish they could all be here. Oh, you brought the whole bag. Excellent. Okay. Good. Well, yeah, you know, excellent. Good. <clears throat> Okay, my wallet's in there so nobody walk up and steal it while I'm distracted from preaching. Uh, as Peter said, I'm, I have the privilege of being the senior pastor of Sovereign Grace Church. We're not too far from here. We're, we're down on Oracle and Ina Road, uh, and we're probably a lot like you guys. We are just a church who is learning to walk humbly before the Lord, to walk and live out sound doctrine, and most of all, to live to reflect and live according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, I know that's happening here. Uh, I, I pray for Holy Cross, um, and I'm a Holy Cross fan. Uh, even though I don't know most of you, I, I do know your pastor, Pete. And Pete has become a, a dear friend to me. Pete is a man that I really respect. Um, I, I have, it has been fun over the last three years getting to know him. We met in a Starbucks uh, which is how I, I meet a lot of other pastors around town. Um, but uh, I, I know him to be a man who loves Jesus and who loves God's word and who loves God's church. And in particularly, he loves this church. Um, and, and I know that from talking with him. And so it really is my privilege to be able to come and just serve him while he's out. I, I, I hope that uh, that little one comes soon. And uh, there's good news. Maybe, maybe we'll even hear that good news before we're done here this morning. But I was instructed by Pete to preach a parable, this short series you guys are in, and I chose Luke 18. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you can open to, your, to Luke 18 or flip or slide or whatever you, uh, whatever you have, um, turn to Luke 18. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 14 this morning. It's the parable... Uh, of the tax collector, the Pharisee, and the tax collector. So let me read this, and then we'll pray, and we will begin. Verse 9, Luke 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's what Jesus taught. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, 
I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for these people. Thank you for Pete. As he faithfully follows your call to shepherd this flock. And thank you for your word. Thank you for this word that is active and living and that this morning, no matter how imperfect the preacher, no matter how inadequate the preacher You intend to work in the hearts of your people through this parable. So we pray that that everyone in this room would experience the work of your spirit as your word goes forth. May go forth in power and may go forth in a way that transforms and renews and builds our faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on our pulpit at Sovereign Grace Church, uh, we have a small plaque right here that has six simple words on it. Preacher, we want to see Jesus. I had to put on our pulpit as a reminder to every man who stepped into that pulpit to preach the Word of God that he would be reminded that the greatest thing that he can give the people gathered there is Christ, to help them see Jesus above all things. And that is my goal this morning through this parable, is to, above all things, help you see Christ, to help you see Christ through whatever may be clouding your vision this morning, whatever it is that might be competing for Christ in your life, that this short but powerful parable would be used to help you see Jesus more clearly, to give you Jesus. So to that end, I've broken up this parable into three parts. If you are the type that likes to take notes, um, the the points are pretty simple. They're descriptive in nature. Uh, I've broken this parable up into three parts. Two men, we're going to look at two men briefly. We're going to understand these two men and their background. We're, we're going to look at their two prayers. And then finally, we will look at one truth and uh, one way that we can apply what we've learned here. So let's get right into it. Uh, verse 10, we see Jesus in this parable introducing two men. Two men. Notice what it says in verse 10. Jesus says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. I don't know how familiar you are with, with, with the Pharisees. 
Uh, but I think we all know that Jesus rebuked no group in his ministry more than the Pharisees. Time and time again, as you read the Gospels, we find Jesus excoriating the Pharisees for their self-righteousness, for their arrogance, for their pride. You know that, you know that you're not looked upon very well when, when your title becomes a byword, right? I mean, who here hasn't said, you little Pharisee? Right? I mean, we, we relate the Pharisee to all that is uh, self-righteous and arrogant and, and, and prideful in our hearts and in each other's hearts. And so this is a group that we can look on now having God's word in the New Testament and go, this wasn't a good group of men. But you know, in Jesus' day, when this parable was being taught, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees... It wasn't like that. The Pharisees were, were, were highly regarded. Man, they were a highly respected group. They, they were men seen as ones who interpreted God's word, the Old Testament scriptures, with precision. Uh, these were men who were seen to be zealous for the law, serious about keeping God's law. All 600 of them, as laid out in the Old Testament. These were men who, who were theologically informed. The, these are, are men who, there was, there was no one more religiously devoted to God's ways than these men. No one was as religiously devoted. No one was, was characterized by a perceived righteousness more than the Pharisees. Uh, as we'll see in the prayer in a moment, the, the Pharisee was a morally upright person. The Pharisee was someone who was faithfully religious. And yes, even grateful to God for making them that way. If this man in this parable were in your church today, he would probably be seen as, as a theological Leader, He would probably be seen as a respected, beloved leader in your church. He would be someone that you would want to introduce, that person who walked in the door from your church. That's how the Pharisee was viewed when Jesus is telling this parable. Then there's the tax collector. There's the second player in this parable. To the original audience for the, for the uh, tax collector, they, the, the, Jesus telling the story about a tax collector being down at the temple praying, that would have been a huge stretch. It's easy to believe that the Pharisee was down at the temple praying. But a tax collector, a tax collector didn't go down to the temple to pray. And if he was down at the temple, he wasn't there to pray. He was there to do something uh, very different. A praying tax collector would have been an oxymoron. Clean dirt or jumbo shrimp. So this idea of Jesus using this tax collector, immediately, uh, immediately there would have been a sense in the, in the uh, listener's mind that, hey, we know who the good guy is here. Now the tax collector was seen as a shameless, greedy, dishonest crook. For the Jewish person in particular, the tax collector, because they were employed by the Roman government, would have been seen as a traitor. Uh, the, the tax collector would have been guilty of much of what the Pharisee, as we'll see in a moment, prayed that he's glad he isn't like. 
fact, Kent Hughes describes it this way. He says, in today's culture, the closest social equivalent, that being to the tax collector, would be the drug pushers and pimps, those who prey on society, who make money off others' bodies and make a living stealing from others. That's the tax collector. That's, in our culture today, how we would have understood this tax collector. So, as this parable gets going in verse 10, we have, for the original hearers, we have the Pharisee, who represents everything that's good and right, and then we have the tax collector, who represents everything that's bad and wrong. Those are the two men. Now, let's look at their two prayers. They each say a prayer to God. Notice the Pharisee's prayer beginning in verse 11. It says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterer, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. It's easy to read that and at first glance get a sense of respect for the Pharisee, which would have been in keeping with the original audience. If you notice in that prayer, he was devoted to prayer. He's at the temple praying. He was an honest man, not like the extortioner, not like the thief, not like the tax collector. In his prayer, he says, I'm not like the adulterer. I'm faithful to my wife. He says, I fast twice a week. Now you do the math, (laughs) that's a hundred times more than the law required. A hundred times more. That's a guy devoted religiously. That's a guy devoted to God's word. He was going above and beyond a hundred times. He says in verse 12 that he tithed not on some, but on every penny that came in. Never missed a tithe. Every penny that came in, he he tithed on. And did you notice at the beginning of verse 11, he even gives God glory for all of this. He says, I thank you, God, that you've made me not like them. So he's even giving God glory. So it's easy to look at this prayer and go, hmm. For us, it's, it's, it's easy to look beyond that and not catch that part of the story because of what we know about the Pharisee. So what's wrong with this prayer? What's wrong with this prayer? Well, did you catch, I'm sure you did, but did you catch all the eyes in his prayer? Look back at the prayer again. He says, in verse 11, he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Down in verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. There are five, there, this prayer is two sentences long, and there are five references to himself here. Five eyes that really give us a window into this man's heart. Was this man morally upright? Sure. Was this man religiously devout? Absolutely. Was this man giving God glory for these things? Yeah, he he did. Right there in his prayer in verse 11. So what's wrong with the prayer? This is what's wrong with the prayer. He, He was trusting in a righteousness produced in him rather than a righteousness provided for him. If you're taking notes, that's something you should write down. That's the crux of this parable and the connection that we are going to make to the gospel. 
The thing wrong with this prayer is that the Pharisee was trusting in a righteousness produced in him instead of a righteousness provided for him. In fact, look at verse 9. We get the point of the parable when it says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. John Piper says, The issue is not whether or not the Pharisee was righteous. The issue is that he was trusting in the wrong righteousness. He's trusting in a righteousness produced in him rather than a righteousness provided for him. In this prayer, he is standing up tall and strong in the face of God and saying, Look! Look at me! Look what I've done. Look what I'm doing. Look what I'm not doing. Look at me. Who here is familiar with Brian Regan, the comic? Have you ever seen his me monster act? I mean, you know, I don't think he's a believer, but, but he has some theological understanding in there. This is the me monster. The Pharisee stands and he's saying, look at me, 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 right? That's what's happening here. This prayer is not about God. Sure, he's framed it. I thank you that you have not made me like this tax collector. But he is a praying about himself. I think he's praying to himself, actually if you really pay close attention to this prayer. So, that's the problem with this prayer. He is coming to God with his hands full and saying, look. A number of years ago, I, I felt like the Lord just gave me a picture for my own life. And I, I, it was a picture where I walked into this room. As I walked in, I looked straight ahead And there was the Lord on his throne. And I am walking towards the throne of God. And in my hands, my hands, my arms are full. They're loaded down of shiny, nice things. And I'm bringing them to the throne of God. And with every step that I get closer... The stuff, that shiny stuff is getting heavier and heavier. And I'm smiling. I got a smile on my face because I'm thinking, Lord, look. Look at me. Look what I've done for you. Look, look at all this, that, how I've lived my life. My smile's getting bigger, but there's no smile on the Lord's face back at me. Rather, he points to the side of the room where his son is standing. As if to say, no, don't come any closer. There. Look there. And as I saw Christ, I broke down. My arms were emptied of everything that I was carrying. And I ran to him. And I looked at the Father. 
And there I saw the smile on the Father's face. Because I came to him not with hands full of all that I had done, but I came to him in Christ and all that he had done. Now, I want you to keep that thought for a moment accessible because we're going to go back to that as we look at the tax collector's prayer. So just keep that picture, keep that thought of the Pharisee trusting in his own righteousness rather than a righteousness provided for him. And let's transition now to the tax collector's prayer in verse 13. Here's the tax collector. He is, says that he is standing far off He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want you to notice the posture of this tax collector. This is the bad guy, remember? This is the despised one. If anyone could be justified before God. It's certainly not this one. But notice his posture. It's altogether different than the Pharisee. Notice in his prayer, he, he's standing in the outer courts of the temple, far off, as if he knew that he didn't dare approach the inner courts, the presence of the Lord. So he remains far off. Notice in his prayer that, just notice his posture as he prays. He doesn't look like the the Pharisee left and right at others comparing himself. He doesn't even, he certainly doesn't look up to the Lord. All he can do is, is look down, which would have been a posture of unworthiness. Notice also he was beating his breast, crying out, have mercy on me, a sinner. To, to beat your breast would have been, well, it would have been a display of contrition. So this tax collector, he is aware of the holiness of God. He does not approach. He does not look left or right. He does not look up. He is aware of his unworthiness. All he can do is droop his eyes to the ground, beat his chest in contrition, and cry out for mercy. There's no eyes in this prayer. There's no me monster in this prayer. Now, which one do you think would be justified in the eyes of God? The one coming with righteousness or perceived righteousness? Or the one who dares not even look up to God. The good guy? If you were Jewish, the good guy? Or the bad guy? Look what Jesus says in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man, that is the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself 
will be exalted. This leads us to our third point. Two men, two prayers, one truth. That word justified that Jesus uses there, it means to be made right. It means to acquit. That's what it means. And the, and the humbled, exalted language that Jesus uses makes it clear that, that the point here is justification before God. And it's the wretched and empty-handed tax collector, the one that knows he has nothing to bring to God, is the one that will be made right with God. If, uh, I don't know how, how, how familiar you are with the parables, but... When you read a parable, most parables, they, they kind of operate like a good joke. There's a punchline to them. Jesus tells the parable, and then at some point, he, he drops the hammer. And, and that hammer is normally what you did not expect. Well, that's this moment. Verse 14 is the punchline. This is the pow moment. This is dropping the hammer. Those in the audience, this would have been a what moment for them. Hold on, the, the tax collector is the one who's justified? Not the Pharisee? That greedy, dishonest, he knows he's a sinner. He won't even look at God. He doesn't even approach. Well, that, that's the moment here. That's the punchline. And for us, it's easy to look over that because we know the word. You, you know the Bible. You know the gospel. You know what's coming. You know what Jesus is talking about. You, you know that as you continue to read in Luke's gospel that something is going to happen. You, you know the punchline. But for this original audience, this was earth-shaking. The tax collector is the one justified before God. And the key to really understanding what Jesus says in verse 14, if you're saying, well, pastor, it seems like you're just jumping there. Are you reading into this? Well, actually, no, I'm not just saying that that's the punchline because I know the gospel's coming. Understanding this parable through the lens of two words in this parable is critical. Look at verse 13 again in the tax collector's prayer and notice the phrase, be merciful. Those two words are so important to this parable. The, 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 the Greek verb for the phrase there is the word translated propitiation. It's a word that we don't use a lot. But it, it essentially means to turn away God's wrath so you can experience his favor. And for the Jews in the audience here, this phrase, be merciful... For, for many of them, at least for some of them, the ones well taught in the Old Testament scriptures, it probably would have brought their thoughts back to Leviticus 16, where we learn about the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement, if you're not familiar with that, I'm just going to give you a condensed version. So this week, go to Leviticus 16 and, and read about the Day of Atonement, if you're not familiar with it. But the Day of Atonement was, was one day a year, one day a year where, where the high priest would atone for the sins of Israel before God. And he would use two goats to do that. The first goat, they would slaughter, they would sacrifice it, and the high priest would take its blood into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle it 
on the mercy seat, which was that, that, that space in between the two seraphim on the Ark of the Covenant. So with the first goat, he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat to show that blood had been shed for the sins of Israel. And then he would go and he, he would get the second goat. And with the second goat, the high priest would lay his hands on its head and he would confess the sins of Israel. And when he did that, it was symbolic of transferring Israel's sins to this goat. So this goat became a sin bearer. This goat became a scapegoat for Israel. And once that was done, the goat would be walked out of the camp and out into the wilderness. There's a lot of stories about what would happen next, but one of them is that it would be walked off a cliff where it would fall to its death, carrying the sins of Israel with it. So together, these two goats on the Day of Atonement, they did what Israel could never do for themselves. They propitiated. That word there, be merciful. That's the word, that's the, that's the word there that that phrase represents. The goats propitiated for Israel's sins. That is, they became this substitutionary blood sacrifice that turned the wrath of God away from his people so that instead they could experience his favor and his mercy. This is what the tax collector is praying for when he says, Be merciful to me, a sinner. This tax collector saw on one side a holy God and on one side himself, a wretched sinner. And he says, God, propitiate my sins. God, take my sins away from me. Be merciful to me. This, this tax collector is asking God to be his propitiation. And you know what? That's exactly what would happen. Tur- turn in your Bibles to Romans 3 for a moment. I want to show you something. This word propitiate which is the verb represented there in that phrase, be merciful. We see it four times in the New Testament. First in Romans 3. Verse 23 says, familiar text to to you, I'm sure. For all sin to fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now flip over to Hebrews 2.17. Hebrews is just before the book of James. Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made, speaking of Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says next. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, 1 John 2. Just a couple books towards the back of your Bible. 1 John 2. 
verse 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And finally, 1 John, same book, but chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Don't you love it when the Bible from beginning to end comes together? Do you, do you see, do you see what, it, what is happening here? Like these two goats in the Day of Atonement, which is very likely where the mind of, of the Jewish people in the audience would have went. Like these two goats that came between God and Israel and bore their sins that they might receive mercy. So Jesus came between you, if you know him this morning. He came between you and your sin and his holy Father. Jesus, the one telling this very parable is the one who would fulfill the Day of Atonement. So that someone like the tax collector could not experience wrath from God, but experience mercy. That the very thing this wretched tax collector is pleading God for. Atone for my sins. Propitiate my sins. Be merciful to me. The teacher of this parable, well, that's what he came for. That that's what he came for. See, on the cross there was this great exchange. We all know that Jesus died for our sins. Our sin, your sin, my sin was imputed to Christ. It was credited to him. It was put upon his shoulders where he hung on a cross, suspended between heaven and earth. And he hung there shedding his blood for my sin. He bore my sin on his shoulders and he absorbed the the divine and unrelenting wrath of God that was meant for me. And he did that once and for all. No more day of atonement. No more need for goats. He became the mediator. No longer goats mediating, but Jesus, God in flesh. He provided forgiveness of sin on the cross. But that's not all that happened on the cross. At the same time, while my sin is being imputed to him, his righteousness is being imputed to me. His righteousness. See, more than forgiven, the cross, the cross brings our justification before God. Not with the righteousness produced in you, Not like the Pharisee. That's why the Christian life is not about what you do. Oh, the Christian life has implications for you and it calls you to live in a particular way. That's not the point right now. The point right now is the Christian life is not about what you do to be made right with God, to experience mercy from God. It's about what Christ did. That once and for all day of atonement, that once and for all sacrifice There is no righteousness within. 
that I can lean on, that I can trust in. Because none of my righteousness could ever satisfy an infinitely righteous God. But I have this righteousness provided for me. It's not in me. It's alien. It was provided for me in Christ. That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, that's, that's what's at the heart of the gospel. And that's what the Pharisee isn't getting in this parable. He's trusting in a righteousness produced in him. He's acting as if he's the two goats. Instead of the righteousness provided for him. It's subtle. It's subtle, but, but the reality is the Pharisee was exalting himself by making the basis of his justification before God. Meaning, making the basis of his rightness before God. Look, God looks upon him and he sees no reason to judge him. That's what it means to be justified before God. God looks at me and he sees no reason to judge me, but only give me grace and mercy and say, come in. He, he is basing that reality on his own morality, on his own religious devotion. And like I said earlier, like Piper said, it doesn't matter if he's giving credit to God for that righteousness or not. It doesn't matter if it was self-produced or God-produced. It's a righteousness other than the righteousness of Christ. And any righteousness that is not the righteousness of Christ will always fall short of securing the favor and forgiveness and love of God. Now, it's easy if you're like me. I don't know you. I think you're probably like me, though. We're all fallen. But it's easy to see the self-righteousness of the Pharisee, isn't it? But we're all guilty. We are all guilty of self-propitiation, of self-atonement. We are naturally self-righteous. It, 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 it is the disease of humanity. Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love. Steadfast love, just another way to say goodness. Many a man. Maybe that should say every man, every woman, and even every child <laughs> proclaims his own, his own goodness. My three-year-old grandson, he's going through this phase now where when he sees his little brother being disciplined for doing wrong, you know what he does? He rushes up to Nana or Papa or Mommy or whoever. He rushes up and he says, I didn't disobey. I obeyed. And you, you want to laugh and chuckle and go, oh yeah, good boy, good boy. But there's something happening there, isn't it? He's being the Pharisee. He's being what Proverbs 20 said. He's rushing up and saying, look at my obedience. Look at my goodness. Look at me. Right? I mean, it starts at a young age, doesn't it? He's rushing up and, and in his own way, he's saying, oh, I'm glad I'm not like my little brother, little sinner. Little disobeyer. Always doing his own thing. Look at me, mom. 
That's what he's doing. He's a, he's a great example, but he's a little Pharisee. I'm a big Pharisee. Because I, 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 that's me far too often. Far too often I'm trying to smuggle my character into my relationship with the Lord. Thinking that when I do that, he looks down on me, he pats me on the back and says, Well done, Derek. Oh, great, great sermon this morning, Derek. You really gave him Jesus. You really gave him my son. Man, I knew there was something about you that drew me to you. I mean, like picking a good stock, I knew I picked a winner when I chose to apply the blood of my son to your dead heart. And, and, and internally, it, start to stand up straight. Yeah, you did make a good choice. Yeah, you do got the right person preaching at Holy Cross this morning. Yeah, I, I'm a good father. Look at me. And, and, and it's subtle, but we begin to relate to God on the basis our performance. We begin to function. We might not confess it with our mouth, but functionally, meaning the way we live our life, we we begin to actually believe that God looks on me with more favor than him. Because this week, I didn't yell at my wife and get harsh with her like he did. Or this week, I was a better parent than she was. Or this week, I gave. Not 10%, 20%. And I know you didn't, I doubt you gave 2%. It's ugly. We would never confess it. But I find myself living and thinking and treating others in ways that would affirm. I'm not like the tax collector beating my breast and saying, oh, Lord, it doesn't matter how well I think my week went this week. Be merciful to me. I am a sinner. But rather I step out like that Pharisee. Listen, is there anything more destructive? Is there anything more destructive to our walk with the Lord than this? That self-righteousness, it it denies the sufficiency of the cross. It It drains the power of the gospel. It robs Christ of his glory. That is, it, it takes away from the sufficiency of his righteousness on your behalf. Yes, I don't know where you are this morning, but Dane Ortland said, only the doctrine of justification by faith alone will enable you to experience life as a joyful, relaxed gift rather than a frantic, fretful attempt to impress. Is that you this morning? Frantically and fretfully, you are trying to impress God. You're on the treadmill. Either you live with a sense of displeasure every day 
because of how poorly you perform spiritually. Or maybe you live with a sense of pride because this week or this day, spiritually, yeah, you rock the house. Full devotions. Led someone to Christ. Gave the homeless person some food and money. Reached out to your neighbor. You feel like a Christian rock star. And you feel like today, I think God thinks I'm a Christian rock star. So you get up the next morning and you try it all over again. Is that you? That, that's the frantic, fretful treadmill of performance. We're all on it at certain times. But if that's you today, can I encourage you? It's time to totally look away from yourself. Like this tax collector. It's time to look away from your righteousness. You don't have any righteousness. I don't care how good you've been this week. There is no righteousness apart from the righteousness of Christ. We are all the tax collector. Is that you? Christian, hear this. You are justified before God. You are at peace with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You are justified before God. Christ's righteousness on your behalf is sufficient for you. You don't need to add to it. God looks at you this morning if you are in Christ as if you've never sinned. Think of that word, I'm justified in Christ. That means it's just, God looks upon me just as if I had never sinned but fully obeyed every moment of every day of my life. There is no record of my sin. That's why Psalm 3 says, it is as far as the east is from the west. Why? That's not a reflection on you. That's a reflection on the righteousness of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And that church, that should produce, wherever you are, this truth should produce joy. This, this, this truth should take your, your obedience that seems dutiful and mundane and it should turn it in to glad worship. Because none of your failures today or tomorrow, if you are in Christ, will ever separate you from Christ. Because when God sees you, he sees his son. And he says, well done. Such is your union with Christ by faith. When God looks upon you, he doesn't see your shiny things. And he doesn't see your ugly sin. He sees his son who is perfect in every way on your behalf and who has justified you. That's the truth of this parable. And that's a truth that I hope that the Spirit will cause to lay hold in your heart this morning. Because when it does, it will transform your life. It will transform the way you relate to people. See, how you view your relationship with God is revealed in how you relate to others. How you, when you relate to the other believer, you know, that believer who once again is caught in that sin, do you say, come on. I'm glad I'm not like that. I kicked that sin years ago. 
That person who just doesn't seem to, they're just weak spiritually. They're always at the same place. Well, if you have that fair sake way of relating to God, then you'll have that fair sake way of relating to that person versus saying, hey, I think you need help in this area, but here's where your help begins. In Christ, my brother, my sister, your sin has been nailed to the cross. And he sees you through the lens of Christ's righteousness. What about the unbeliever? It will, this gospel, the gospel transforms knowing that you've been justified in Christ and nothing can change that. It transforms the way you relate to unbelievers. You don't look at them like the Pharisee that says, man, I'm glad I'm not like that. I was at the mall the other, the new outlet mall the other day, just sitting there watching all the traffic, and I found myself going, ugh, wow. I was judging people in my heart, and I thought, okay, Lord, that's going in the sermon. I guess you gave that to me to humble me before this church. But whatever it was, the young guy who I just noticed staring down every female that walked by, or the guy who's kid who's talking to his parents in a way that just totally disrespectful. How easy for me to go. But that's me too. That was me before Christ. And apart from the grace of God, that's me now. And I still walk that way even though I've been saved by grace. See, I am the tax collector. You are the tax collector. And you are either the tax collector who is not under God's mercy right now, but only his wrath because you don't know Jesus Christ. And if that's you, I would encourage you to talk to somebody in this church because there's a real place called hell and it's coming. But Jesus provided a way. He became the scapegoat for you. That full and final day atonement 2,000 years ago at Calvary. He died for your sins. He lived for your righteousness so that you no longer have to be under the wrath of God, as Scripture says. That comes through faith. But I'm still the tax collector even in faith. I'm just a tax collector who's been forgiven. I'm a tax collector who, who, who's been empowered to live for God's glory. And I know that I will fail in that in so many ways. But because I've been justified before God... I have the freedom to fail every day as I seek to live for God's glory. I don't have a righteousness that's produced in me. The only righteousness that we have is the righteousness provided for us. And Christ did just that. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling to. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the song of this parable. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your Son, Jesus, is on the hearts and minds of people as we leave this place. Do your work. Your word has been preached. Now do your work, the work that you intended before the foundations of the world to do today in this place, through this word, in the hearts of these people, your people. In Jesus' name, amen.